0: You're listening to Red Centre, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's
1: uh, Red Centre. And, uh, of course, joined by Jason Wingrove. G'day. I shouldn't actually say I'm joined by Jason Wingrove. I should say my co-host, Jason Wingrove. Yes, thank you. I'll try and do that from now on. Co-presenter. Yes. Well, as I said, your idea... Yeah, we, we owe this podcast to Jason. I take no credit for it because uh, it was completely your idea, Jason. And but your I, foolishness for saying yes. I appreciate you um, having me around, as we have been now for over two years. It is. We are now in show uh, 62, and uh, let's get straight into it. We're going to have an interview coming up later in the show to do with some, actually some really interesting gear, which I think um, yeah is nice. I really like this. Uh, it's uh, to do with some... Um, proper geared heads, but I don't want to give that stuff away too soon. And also, um, in the show, we wanted to have a bit of an in-depth discussion, which we'll get into a little later, about IR filters and IR pollution. Now, we touched on this last week with um, stuff, and I I think I've said publicly that uh, the ir changes in the mx haven't been fully recognized in the red camera so um for all the reasons that uh they are important to red camera but also for stills cameras um and for uh, the work that we've uh, recommended with things like the lightcraft uh, nd filters we want to revise some of our um our thoughts and also just basically explain i think a lot of the um the weird stuff the the tech geek out yeah understand um, understand infrared pollution and all that sort of stuff i've got to say jace i actually spoke to a really good dop friend of ours um and i won't name him because i don't want to embarrass him he's incredibly good dop i i've sat and watched him shoot many many commercials and i phoned him up and i said dave look i've just got to ask you this question I'm really struggling with some of this uh, stuff with the ND filters. And so I sort of went into this really technical question He went, you know what, I've never been able to get a straight answer to that. <laughs> and that, to me, was the, the throw-down challenge of, uh, of a lifetime. So I was like, all right, I'm going to solve this. And actually, because of some really generous uh, stuff that came through from our friends at Tiffin and other people who yeah. have really responded to our, our yell-out on this, our call-out, um, we have, I think, actually some really good answers. So that will be coming up later in the show. Well, at least try to get one straight answer. To one straight question. No, I think we'll get, I'll get, we'll get more than one. Excellent. Um, just in uh, nature of news, just to start off, not a bit of a dry news week, but I do want to is just it? flag one thing. We talked about Avid Unity, I think, uh, last week when I was right. talking about how much I think Avid Unity is uh, not only centrally uh, key to the success of Avid, but genuinely a terrifically good product and a product that has allowed many offline editors to produce a huge amount of stuff and also for production workflow pipelines to exist in the case of TV stations. Um, we didn't, when we were talking about that, intend to talk about Avid Unity, so I certainly didn't have any pricing and stuff in front of me. Uh, as it would happen, Joce, during the week, um, Avid announced uh, new pricing for Avid Unity.
2: Yeah, well, the turnkey system from a- for Avid Unity is starting at 35000 I mean, that is starting to sound like a lot of money these days, but I guess you're getting a lot for that.
1: Look, I think the thing about uh, Unity is that we are talking – reason my money thirty five thousand i'm not saying that we're not, but that is absolutely a fraction of what unity used to cost, and for that we're getting um the full kind of eight client license um, proper rack mounted piece of kit with uh I think that's eight terabytes at that level um, but this is a completely robust working reliable scalable uh, editing backbone so um you know, 35000 is that a lot of money? I guess it is. I had this discussion recently with, with John. We were discussing Red Rocket um, in one of the uh, other podcasts. Yes, and that was well worth listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I don't know if you'll agree with him, but I, my central point was when did $5,000, which is all that, or um, well, thereabouts, five, six, that, um, that the Red Rocket card costs, when did that become a huge outlay? Because did compared I blink to, and the industry just changed? I yeah, suppose I did.
2: Compared to, I mean, what what just a regular base avid used to be it was you know, it was like a fifty, you know, sixty five thousand dollar investment to set up an avid not so long ago.
1: Yeah, and I mean, uh, I don't know if it's a sense of entitlement. I don't know if I should play blame YGen for um, some kind of uh, kind of attitudinal shift, but it just seems to me that uh, Red Rocket is phenomenally good value for what it gives. And yet I can see that other people have a counterpoint of view, which is that's a really expensive dongle to add onto a Red uh, pipeline. And I'm like, but it's 4K and it's real time yeah. and it's all these things that would have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, yeah. even a few... Like a year ago, and you don't have to have it. You don't have to have a Red Rocket card. It's considerably
2: helping, you know, your workflow and you know how long it's going to take you to get a job out the door. But it's
1: not, you know,
2: totally. You don't you don't have to have one to do it.
1: No, but I mean, you you mentioned before the cost of um, an Avid, mm-hmm. um, a media composer. Now the Mojo DX system is about eight grand, or or even I think less if you're um, doing an upgrade. I think and that was partly, I suppose, the fifty and sixty grands were all sort of back in the
2: days when Avid insisted they install you an entire system and you got their monitors, you got their amps, you got their little desktop speakers, you got everything. You know, they'd come and and uh, you had to have this
1: uh, this mouse and this keyboard. Yeah, no, and and true enough, but I mean, I guess the thing is it's the labor costs haven't plummeted. I mean, they have gone down, obviously people uh, some salaries have gone down, but generally speaking, like, you know, the orders of magnitude difference in uh, gear isn't reflected in the order of magnitude that you should be paying your staff. So it's really like the cost of the infrastructure around the individual. Um, And look, it's, you know, it's not unique to that. I must admit, I was kind of, it wasn't a major point, but I was watching the other day as some uh, Apple new kit was being dropped off at our office. And I just looked at the packaging, which I don't normally do. um, And the Apple monitors, you know, the really nice displays, all of the packaging for that now no longer showed a tower it showed a laptop and they were like promoting these monitors as simply which is what I do on my desk uh, for everyday work I have a laptop plugged into a monitor and it was like Apple was going yeah well n- you know no longer is it reasonable to expect that these monitors are primarily used on towers yeah uh, towers are are rarer and yet uh, you know again like the what you can do on a laptop is extraordinary but I must admit I was like really really that's what the number one market is I guess I guess it is I think it just moves things things move along but um. I think this is great. I think Avid Unity uh, is also um, more than just, uh, as I think we touched on last week, more than just a, a storage system. It really is one of those few products um, that is workflow. And I'm, I'm only raving about it because I think it is probably one of the biggest um, advantages that Avid has over, say, Final Cut. Um, there's some UI stuff, of course, but having this kind of major workflow approach that these guys have had, and and I've seen a real turnaround in Avid. I've no... Interest in Avid. Avid don't advertise with us. I'm not doing this for any other reason. I just honestly have seen a big turnaround in Avid, yeah, absolutely, and uh, and in pricing, and I applaud it. Yeah. I mean, so
2: if I'm understanding, say Unity correctly, this is essentially central hub for all your media. I mean, mm-hmm. this is why it's sort of you know really big in edit houses is that you know you can swap rooms, you can editors yep. can change rooms and be able to you know have the same media. Your assistant can be syncing up footage on your project while you're editing, you know, day one. So they can be working on the same footage and... and exactly. Uh,
1: and, and even more so, you can have people that are working on final online while other people are working on offlines and you can have a workflow that passes stuff back and forth and people add graphics and it goes back in. It's like, it is the hub. For example, if I was doing a TV station right now, like an, an actual uh, cable channel, I would be probably putting in these Avid stations as part of that workflow and I'd be putting a bigger, obviously, but an Avid uh, Unity. It's, it's the kind of... I don't know, you know, it's not a very sexy product in one sense. Uh, It's obviously Raid and and all that kind of stuff. But, man, is it just like the, you know, it's one of those just serious pieces of kit that would define the difference between a ma and pa shop. And someone that just knows what they're doing and does yeah. this kind of stuff seriously. And
2: Final Cut's never really sort of they got haven't. that. Got the, I mean, they had Final Cut server, but I don't it think that's really It sucked. It sucked. It
1: sucked. Oh, my God, it sucked. I, I just learned to hate it with the intensity of a thousand white hats. I hate that fucking thing. <laughs> it just... Oh, my God, that was annoying. Like, imagine having a system that's meant to be managing audio and you give it a frigging audio file and A, it doesn't recognize it. B, it has no icon to indicate it and it even, won't even tell you the t- file type of the audio. I mean, does it... Do they think it doesn't matter if it's an AIF or a Wave or an MP3? Oh, my Lord. Oh, so I'm just reading between, oh, between the, the lines time here. I wasted on that frigging price of software.
2: Just reading between the lines here. It's not very good.
1: I'm not recommending it,
2: <laughs> and they have oh. just dropped it, and they haven't really supported it, and but they haven't they developed it, really and they haven't improved it. For it. They had a
1: really launch for Yeah, they good did. Absolutely, they had really good. Like Radical Media, if you work for Radical Media and you're involved in that campaign, I hate you. Like I love everything Radical Media does, <laughs> as an, but oh my god, I, I I invested time and energy in that because I thought Radical Media now there's an organisation that I can get by. Like that is a good company. They do good things, and they were all. like oh, We use this mm. all the time. Like I was proposing that we switch our FX PhD production over to Final Cut Server, I mandated that people had to use it for a week or two because I was like, look, we're not going to switch over unless you get yeah, it." And people were like did. coming in virtually like with bloodied fingers crying saying, please don't make me do this anymore. I can't get my work done. Right. I'm sorry. I even, hired a, I even hired a demo guy from Apple who was demoing the software because I was like, we must be doing something wrong because we want to take advantage of this and get in front of the curve and I can't seem to get this to work. And he actually said... Uh, you know what yeah, it just it doesn't. doesn't work and I was like what right. said, maybe in version 2 or 3 which I don't know if you've yeah. seen that I haven't seen that no I'm sure not um, and all I have not go at Apple I'm, I'm an Aperture user I have Apple laptops but that's piece of friggin marketing annoyance right Anyway, moving on yeah um, moving on and I do use Final Cut don't get me wrong i um, uh, the other piece of news that I don't want to comment on much other than to say uh, best wishes is that uh, if you follow Red, you'll notice that uh, Jim has uh, taken off a month uh, for uh, medical reasons and uh, I offer no opinion on uh, anything there other than to say uh, you know best wishes from us and um, yep. obviously from the Red community. Absolutely. Um, Get well soon for whatever reason. And the other piece of Red-related news, which I thought was just delightful and I, I'm sorry, a slight rat hole, is the massive massive, massive $20 million Red Mansion, which I've got to say, and i to mention it because yeah. it wasn't like Jim bought it personally. He said he bought it for users of Red Center. Uh, sorry, did I say that? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking... Excellent. I'm just thinking Red users. I'm just thinking um, I'd like to use it during SIDGraph if anyone's not using it. God's not using the mansion, overlooking the Hollywood Hills. Uh, do you want to explain this? Because uh, maybe people don't know what I'm talking about. Well, basically,
2: um, people have been sort of reading between the lines on real estate blogs and uh, there's been basically 20, not a beautiful-looking 20, $20 million mansion, which used to be Carl Rove's residence,
1: I think. No, no, I think, I think that was I, – I, I, maybe I'm wrong. I think that that was actually – you misread uh, the real estate site. I maybe think they I were saying that Carl Rove – we selling his place. And, oh, by the way, this other guy, right. uh, Jim, was also selling his place because I don't think they're actually the same um, piece of real estate. But Right. Uh, but, yeah, the
2: gist of the yeah. uh, article was that this uh, – I'll it, check that. It's theoretically right. not it's, – it's not Jim's house. It is specifically for uh, guests of of Red, uh, as I said, whatever I'd, that I'd means. I'd, I'd love to or be Red a guest Center. of Red
1: around uh, time. That would be great uh, because, you know... Sure. This is the... Do you know what it reminded me of? I know the scene in the beginning of... um, uh, What was that film? I think actually Stu worked on it. The one... Um, the Star Trek uh, humorous uh, thing where they... Galaxy Quest. Galaxy Quest. And remember, that house. That yes. house. Yeah. Where, where, yeah, right. where he's there and the aliens come in the morning to pick him up. And he's <laughs> yeah. like, did you bring the limo? and stuff. So, That's the house it looks like. I don't know if it is that house, but man, it looks like that house. I'm it looks like, like 20 uh, million worth. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm totally... Good on you. I'm great. I'm not criticising it. It's just a bit funny, right? Like, because I'm
2: sure when you go to pick up your tattoo or your epic, Mike, you can sort of tell us what it's like from the inside.
1: I, I, if I get a chance to walk in one of the 7,500 square feet of the mansion on the two-acre lot of the Hollywood Hills that Hal Leverett, the architect, built, I'll be sure to tell you about it, Jase. I wonder what's happening with, you know, with, there was going to be the Vegas... The Vegas Ranch, Red Ranch. Vegas Ranch, Ranch.
2: yeah. Do we I don't know. What's the
1: of um, that? You know, it's probably a really good time to buy real estate in America. So, um, and I, you know, good luck yeah. to them. I have no problem with that. It. It's just uh, not something you normally see. I haven't seen Ari buying any, no. you know, islands in the Bahamas recently, but hey. Although they could do. They could. They I mean, could do And now. I'd welcome them if they did. They're doing quite well. I mean, I think they could probably had... buy Greece because they're a German company. Yeah,
2: I think they've had an excess of 400 orders plus for uh, Alexa by now, and uh, which is terrific, right. which is well over... Three or four times what they, what they ever sold of of D twenties and D twenty ones. Yes. So yeah,
1: I'm sure Aries always. But obviously you can up. tell it's a bit of a light news week that oh. this is what we are discussing. Shit yes. <laughs> right. Okay. Well should
2: we move on to infrared? Infrared, let's discuss infrared. Okay, mm. so
1: um, and I, I hesitate to give you guys a warning that this is uh, may get a little dry. No. <laughs> what? Really? No. Um, there are a lot of people that love us doing rat holes and geeky stuff to do with the industry. And this this is a, uh, how can I put this, a, um, a pre uh, planned rat hole on IR filters. We could Wasn't have pretended it? that it was yeah. not thus.
2: There's a lot of this stuff that you just take for granted and so, until someone says, why is this called this? And you think, I don't know, it just is.
1: Okay, so let's let's back up and just give everyone a quick overview. Whether you're using a red camera, whether you're using um, a uh, Canon, you're uh, using a. An EX3 doesn't really matter. <clears throat> the uh, the point is that there's a a range of colour or light that comes into um, existence, and of course we all understand how that works. It's visible light. And we have uh, at one end ultraviolet. And we have at the other end infrared. Um, so colour goes between 380 and about 450 nanometers, which is to say the uh, visible wavelength spectrum. And red kicks in at about 620 and goes up to, obviously, the 750 because at that point red stops being red and starts becoming um, just infrared. Though infrared kind of overlaps with red. So at about 700 nanometers, up to about 1,400, we have what's called... Um, ira or, or infrared A. Eh? now wh- why do i give a shit right <laughs> what huh what, what what are you talking about you crazy man well um the thing about infrared uh is that well let's put it this way do you ever go and have a really good fire in a fireplace like a barbecue kind of fire Absolutely. yeah so obviously things burn red hot then they burn white hot and obviously, if a filament in a light burns white hot enough, we use it as a light and we, we light things with it. Um, so that idea of things um, building up before they're actually you know, visible light and they sort of become light. But obviously, if you're sitting in front of a fire, there's red light coming out. And obviously, at some point, the a burning white, uh, red hot poker becomes a white hot filament and we get white light. Okay, so, so there's this concept of IR contamination, which is to say that there is... Um, infrared light that's coming in and buggering up the sensors uh, when you're talking about um, CMOS sensors in particular. And this was first, I think, came to uh, attention for most people when red users started saying, hey, I'm shooting this guy in a black top, and if I do this with lots of NDs, it seems to go purple. purple." Hmm. And um, now at that time, we got a lot of questions which were centred around... Uh, what do I do to fix this and I'm really freaking out. And my attitude then as it as it remains to this day is for many for most users it's not a big problem. And for those users that it's a minor problem it's an easy colour correction fix. But let me ask you, Jace. you're doing a job, you're shitting outside, you expect to have some NDs. Are you going for special NDs that that address this problem, or just normal NDs? Well, we're going for special
2: NDs now just because we think we should, but not because of any understanding of, of why, you know. And there is a lot of issues with, with how you use these uh, infrared or these hot mirror infrared filters, and I think there's a lot of people using them the wrong way and stacking them the wrong way and doubling them up and... Uh, I think it's one of those things. Oh, I should use it, but no one actually really knows knows why. And there's, you know, in a lot, as you say, in a lot, of, in a lot of cases, there's not necessarily the need for them.
1: Okay. Well, let's discuss first what an ND filter is doing because we all think we know what an ND filter. is Well, can I doing. step
2: back and maybe I don't know if you can answer this, Mike. The 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 leap of logic that I'm trying to work out, and I still can't quite get my head around, is. You know, that classic thing of, you know, you point an infrared remote at a video camera, any video camera, and you can actually see the infrared. How we actually get light that can't be seen or near near infrared or out of the visible spectrum, how that can affect visible light, how that can affect light that we can't see affects suddenly starts to affect something we can.
1: Sure, okay, what's well, the easiest thing to answer? Okay, so so you shoot infrared, our eye can't see it but a sensor can see it. A sensor interprets that as being a signal. Yep. It interprets the signal as being at the red end of signals and produces red light, right? So it just simply says, oh, I can see that, and we go, well, well I can't. Right. And because it can see it, it reacts to it by you know, increasing the voltage of the A to D converters, which causes the sensors to light up at that point. And it it's lights essentially up a in- fault.
2: It's a, it's a sensor that is converting something outside the spectrum into a color that,
1: yeah, that I mean, we can see on screen. Yeah, have if you have a Sony EX3, they have almost friggin' no built-in IR protection, right? Really? Yeah. Right. And and why would you, right? Because do we really care about, you know, true color fidelity in um, in the lower-end cameras or the smaller chip cameras? It just, like, isn't a big deal, right? And even if it was a big deal in a lower-end camera, the problem becomes acutely more... Uh, sort of aware when you start increasing nd filtering which you don't tend to do in smaller cameras right because like who the frig puts nd filters on you know a uh, two-thirds inch camera you just don't tend to do that or you just flip in and out the the, the, the nd one that's the,
2: yeah, built in the camera exactly. which so may well have an infrared
1: low-pass filter but again we're it. not in a kind of super color fidelity world that we're really obsessed about it okay yeah. so so why did we, it become a really apparent for stills guys, which is why, why the two cameras that I mentioned when I've been doing the intro is the Canon and the RED. It's because both of those have large sensors, which means that people tend to like to shoot shallow depth of field with them. Yep. They go outside, it lights up, especially if the sensors are more sensitive. Yeah, we're which not thoughts, stepping down using the iris in
2: the lens, which is what you were doing with the x 3 exactly. which is why you don't see the issue. Uh, so you're letting all the light come through and you're doing it with filtration. And the main leap of logic is that, if, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the NDs block down mainly just your standard neutral density filter will block down most of the visible, but well, it not really great at blocking the IR. infrared.
1: It sees the IR. It raises the voltage on the A to Ds and voila, you get uh, something happening in the picture that isn't what you expected to happen. Right. So and th- And let's just... I just wanted to clarify the ND thing for yeah, a second yeah, because I think that. that is kind of helps make sense of so this. Because you kind of go, well, I got two or three stops of ND. You know, who gives a rats' right? Like, why has it suddenly become? Well, firstly, we're more likely to use these ND filters stacked up as we use these higher ISO cameras, like an 800 ISO rating on a Red camera or a very sensitive, you know, 1D or 1DS, hopefully. Um, <laughs> will, will, you know obviously require nd sooner because they're more sensitive okay so what's uh what's happening when i go to the rental house and i say hey can i get some filters and they give me a box of 0.3s 0.6s 0.9s 1.2s whatever they're giving me is they're giving me one stop two stop three stop four stop whatever i'm asking for and those numbers um don't seem very sinister when you say them right you say oh it's one stop of nd it's two stops of nd three four whatever um because you're counting in ones, right? And then even if you look at the points, it's like point 0.3, point 0.6, point 0.9, doesn't seem like a radical difference. Okay, if you actually think about what the a normal ND is doing, an ND is absorbing light so that less light goes through and it's trying to absorb it absolutely equally between RG and B so that it's neutral. Yeah. So, if you want to go to 0.5 of uh, the amount of absorption that you would get, in other words, cut the light down by half, oh, yeah, yep, you actually awesome get goodness. about a 0.3. And a 0.3, therefore, is one stop. So, does that make sense? Like, i have cut down the amount of light by half, obviously, it's one stop. So, obviously, a one stop is one stop less light, which yep. means half the amount of light. And I, my transmissive quality of the filter is actually 0.32, which is why they call it a 0.3 filter. But the the nature of this math isn't indicated in the naming system because you go to a no. point six, and well, I'm going to give you the numbers the other way around. Like imagine you never knew those numbers, right? I'm going to just talk about how much you have to absorb. You want to go down to the next level, like I'm sucking out an extra stop. I have yep. to halve it again, right? So I have to go from point three to point one six, which means I have to absorb about seventy, you know, like point seven five of the of the light, basically. And as you keep going down in stops, as you keep on going these, like, um, uh, levels, so I can have gone to 0.16 amounts of transmissive quality, that's only got me two stops, right? I want to go again. I have to go down to 0.09. So to think about that for a second, that's like a tenth of the light getting through to get me to three stops. I want to go another stop. I have to go basically double that to, like... And we're starting to get, like, immensely minuscule amounts of actual transmissive light as a percentage to get your ever-increasing stop hunt. Yeah. So, like, getting a stop or two is cutting down, like, half the amount of light, which you yeah, could imagine. a two-stop ND is essentially a quarter of the light. Yeah, but we're talking about people stacking up four or five stops, right? Yeah. So, if one is 100... Not unheard of. Two or... is 50... Well, sorry, one is is, is nothing, right? So, let's say yep. 100 is percent. So, one stop's 50, two is 25, yep. three is 14, and, and because these numbers keep going, seven... You know, three. Like we're talking about, of the amount of light that started out as hundred percent, you're down to like three percent of Maybe the amount of light. Each it's halving it. It's okay, a half so now on top of a half, on top of a half. But imagine I wasn't cutting down the IRness. I yeah. wasn't cutting down the IR because I don't have anything that really filters IR. Well, I've just got down to 3% of the amount of actual normal light coming in, but most you of the IR got, light's still coming yeah, in. Yeah, still got 100% or you know, yeah. virtually 100% of your infrared. So just for argument's sake, say that I had 3% contamination, just to make life simple, right? Well, at one stop, I've got 3% contamination over, over 50%. It's not that significant. But by the time I get down to four or five stops, the IR equals the amount of visible light getting through. Right. So yeah. whereas it was a tiny percentage at the outset, once I start stacking up my NDs, it just goes through the friggin' roof. Mm. On how much IR is coming through, and so th- it's no wonder that if you were to have a camera trying to be really, really sensitive and read, you know, three percent of the visible light coming through, that if there was a ton of IR, in fact, just as much IR as there is in my example as there is normal light, well, yeah, any effect that IR had would start to play. Yeah. Now, to our eye, of course, because we opened up at the same time we were nding the frigging picture looks the same right yeah so like the picture of the guy sitting in a chair with no filtration has a lot of depth of field but other than the depth of field the focus changing the depth of focus changing he still looks like a guy sitting in a chair we've put on tons of nd but opened up now to f2 and we say well the pictures look the same except for this guy's jeans now have gone a little purple but from the sensor's point of view, you just changed astronomically the ratio of infrared light coming through the, the filter to normal light coming through the filter. Of course, we didn't notice that because we didn't see everything stopping down the way the sensor did. We saw it stopping down and then re-adjusting, opening more. Yeah, okay. Right. Okay, so then you go, okay, so that makes sense now. So now I understand why the hell there might be contamination. Um, Red or camera company, can't you do something to stop that? To which they say, oh, yeah, absolutely, man, totally. In the M filter, we stuck in this um, filter in front of the sensor, which is going to, you know, basically help out a lot with that. Yeah. And um, – Now, if you've got – if you, I mean, I don't know if you've had any of those –
2: Sony handycams that has the night shot or the night vision, mm-hmm. right? Which is essentially when you go to
1: night shot mode, you're flipping out. You're taking out that low pass filter. Yeah, and we call it a low pass filter. It's it actually literally it's called a a optical low pass filter. Like that's the name of it. It's not like a slang. And so the OLPF, yeah, is so obviously there's a lot of advantages to doing that if you you know want to try and get any image, and you're trying to take any part of the visible spectrum. And if if quite frankly, if you are reading. You know uh, a heat signature, then you're basically interpreting heat signature data, which isn't obviously visible light, it's just yeah. as light, because you're getting the sensor to react to different spectrums that are of no longer visible light, and then in turn, whenever it gets some number that's, you know, what it considers hot for a heat sensor, it ups the voltage on the sensor, and it right. produces an image at that point, and if it gets it not much, it stays dark and it's black, and hence mm. you get... The, what is it, predator effect of a heat-seeking um, thing. Okay, yeah. so, so let's go back to fixing the problem. So we've got this friggin thing we're making for ourselves, which is pumping up the percentage of IR to normal because we haven't cut down the IR. So you say, okay, I'll, I'll bung an IR filter in the front of it. And that's uh, one of three options we have, right? So I can go out and I can get an IR filter, which I'm going to call for one of a better term a clear filter. It isn't. It's probably going to be a quarter stop, but let's call it a clear. That's a nickname. But it might be like a T1 IR filter, which is what's typically used on um, video cameras. Right. And that is going to sit with the NDs that I already have. And its job is just to try and absorb IR information and let the nds absorb the visible light spectrum so that's the sandwich that's the i already have a bunch of nds can i buy a filter that with my current bunch of stuff that i spent hundreds of dollars buying will work yep i'll sell you a t1 filter thanks for playing and so now i add a what i'm calling a clear but i only call it clear because that's what its nickname is for many camera assistants um and that just doesn't do much like a quarter of a stop and just generally tidies up um Pulling down IR. As you can imagine, though, it's just a one off pull down, right? It doesn't proportionally change as the ND stacking goes, but right. hey, at least it kills it a bit. Mm-hmm. And that would normally kick in at around 700 nanometers, and that'd be good. And then everyone said, well, I really, really am I'm worried about this problem. And so, fair enough, the filter company said, hey, no problem. So, the Tiffins and the uh, Schneiders and people developed IR ND filters. So the most practical difference between an IR ND filter and a non-IR ND filter with an IR in front of it is that as each individual ND has a IR killer in it, if I stack up IR ND filters, I increase the amount of IR kill. It's not just a one-off. And you're sense. talking about essentially we're talking about hot mirror, right? No, no, no that's, we're just no, talking that's about a IR filters. Thing. Yeah, okay. sorry, I'm, I'm already. No, that's right. It's just that. That, okay, so hot mirrors... Because we've
2: already got the the low-pass filter in front of the sensor, which is doing some.
1: But Clearly but it doesn't do, do as much as we maybe want. Exactly.
2: Right. So as we increase the NDs, we need to then start to increase the level of, of, yes. of infrared Yes. So, solution
1: one is you um, stick a clear IR with your current NDs, but that's a one-off value. Yep. Option two is you buy new IRs, uh, sorry, new ND filters, which are called IR NDs, and each one has an infrared killer in it. And you stack them up, it stacks up the IR killing as well. So that's yeah. a good solution. Yeah. Now, the one that you mentioned is option three, which is um, a dichromic or a, what's called a hot mirror. So a hot mirror is uh, different fundamentally in technology from the, the IR filter. Because the IR filter, you know, I said it was absorbing. So what the hot mirror does, and the reason I started this conversation with the thing about the fire, is it reflects heat. <laughs> That's why it's hot. It doesn't, It's not like you plug it in and it doesn't warm up with a battery or something. It's a hot mirror because it reflects. So imagine you put um, on a pair of those uh, Terminator cop glasses That's that are fully reflective. Oakley glasses. There you go. But the, the wanky reflective ones that wankers wear in... Yeah. That drive exactly. you know, cars that have small penises. Yeah. Okay. So those ones, right? So, so imagine a version of that. Which, which is made as an ND filter. So it actually has a, a thin reflective coating on the outside of the filter, and that basically just reflects stuff back. Now, that works to a point, except for there's three things about it. Firstly, you can scratch it. Well, obviously, you don't want to scratch any filter, but because yeah. you've got a thin reflective filter on the outside, you it, it can scratch. The second problem is it may not necessarily reflect evenly across, so i kind of super wide angle lens you actually maybe be sort of reflecting differently in the corners of the image than in the middle of the image. We're getting pretty techie here. Right. And the third thing is that, <clears throat> this is the, the killer, if you go to the MX filter on the red, it doesn't work. At <laughs> least it doesn't work very well. Right. Um, because it just so happens that red came along and said, you know that uh, filter we discussed a minute ago, that OLPF? I hear you, are going up to 800 ISO and you're worried about uh, NDing. I hear that you guys are all having to spend money on IR filters. Why don't we just improve that yeah. and make a better optical low-fast filter that cuts more out in, more infrared? And they did. And so if you put a hot mirror, like, say, a Tiffin hot mirror in front of a lens, it will actually contaminate now the other way. It actually gets slightly greeny it's instead dust.
2: of starts to eat into the visible yeah somewhat. and it
1: actually affects uh, the, now yeah so in essentially fairness, they're
2: just raising that cutoff level in the, in the spectrum just bringing it a little bit closer so there's less overlap from the two yeah and yeah.
1: because it's different tech it just doesn't do as good a job with the new it's like it's like these two ingredients do not mix well do not make a cocktail that involves the new MX right. filter and a hot mirror type until the camera manufacturer the lens manufacturers have had a chance to develop a new hot mirror because I just shot
2: with hot mirror I mean we weren't we didn't may have had three or four stops um, where we, we were dropping to to stay wide open on, on size super speeds and we had hot mirror on top of you know an MX sensor
1: yeah so you'll get a kind of almost a yellowy tinge which we did if you super little, it, was, it
2: felt a little bit warm
1: Okay, well, that would be it. It looked a stacking bit up. I
2: just thought that was the way – I thought that was my lighting or just a little <laughs> – Oh, I had the uh, ISO – maybe my ISO wasn't quite right. But, yes, it didn't. It had that sort of slight tobacco, sort of slight warmth to it, which was nice because that's exactly what I was looking for. So I didn't go changing just it. I just left that it as proves me being a
1: boffin and <laughs> you being a creative is exactly what it's about. I just left it as it is. It is it. So it was meant if you like the look, then you like the It meant to be sunny, morning light coming through sure. the kitchen, and so we just left it. I'm totally cool with you doing whatever – works for you because you're a really good director I'm just telling you tech because I'm a right. buffany okay. techie guy so
2: I'm going to get a warmer if I use a hot mirror ND on, on top MX? of MX I'm going to get a slightly warmer image I'm going to get yes. yep. I'm looking now, at it now but only
1: if you stack up NDs right uh, sorry if you um, if you play a strong hot mirror because a hot mirror is can be rated yep so these are all in degrees.
2: Now, this is why they make – I'm jumping ahead just physically. Uh, if you buy a set of hot mirrors, they go up to quite a lot higher than the average set of NDs. If you get them out of the pouch, it's going to be a 3, 6, and a 9, mm-hmm. and you use those to stack them together. The idea with hot mirrors is to not actually stack these things. From a few other physical – from just f- some physical reasons. So you'll see a, a set of hot mirrors might actually go up to ND 2.4, which is like eight stops. So – the idea is that because that front face is essentially as is, is a dichroic, right? Yep. It's like essentially has a metalized layer or something laid yep. over in yep. a vacuum on the front le- front yep. of the filter, well, literally like exactly. somebody's come along, which and is
1: what a exactly the front of the oakley glass, which
2: is yep. essentially to some degree you can see when you look through the front port of of a red, you know, your, yep. or, or any digital camera, you'll see what you're looking at. That red tinge is you don't even need me here you is it dichroic is exactly is, you're, right. you're looking at a dichroic totally. on, on the optical low pass okay i don't know that the low pass is a is a hot mirror no. filter but no yes. it's okay. a dichroic no, of, I don't of either, but yeah yeah so the idea is once you've sort of start to get into these hot mirrors if you look at the front face of a hot mirror it is it looks like you know one side of it is very metallized and it's mm-hmm. definitely like reflective sunglasses so if you start stacking those together and putting one mirror in front of another it's actually going to start you're going to start to get really horrible or you can get artifacts uh, yep. internal reflections where you 've got a mirror facing against the back of another piece of glass, so it 's something to watch out so the the, the recommendation is to have yeah exactly. one filter
1: one filter and the filter is the right filter yep and or
2: if you ha- or have a fil- have a, a regular n d and then a hot a mirror, and
1: to always put your yeah. hot mirror. At the front. At the front. Yes. Okay, with the now. facing out. Yes, Shutting exactly. up
0: now. No, 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 going. no. They're not but, shut up, but I'm, I was going to say, but,
1: but we, that's, I'm, I'm picking on Tiffin a bit, but the Tiffin guys have been super helpful. But I've got to point out, this stuff is all, you know, the world of filters and optics and crap isn't like software, right? It's not like you can just go write a hack fix and hit publish. So they, they're working now, because they're a good company, um, on new filters that'll work better with the MX. But as right. we speak today, which of course is all we can talk about. Is yes, you don't. I would not I would not use a hot mirror. Now you might use a hot mirror and go, oh, I love that warmth. And just think, no, it's, it's interesting because I'm looking at that picture and I'm, your, Mike's just
2: got a shot up on the screen, some tests that you've shot clearly with the uh, hot, mirror, with hot mirrors.
1: It's hot. And it looks, it looks like it's looking like my rushes. <laughs> exactly. Well, that would explain it. Okay, okay. this is the whole point of Red Center, right? Like the whole point of Red Center is so that I can hopefully not bore you to tears, but <laughs> I can explain some of this shit from my point of view, technical, but then yes. you can apply it from your point of view yeah. as a director. Yep. And as long as you know what's going on, you can do anything you darn well like, right? Yeah. There is no right or wrong. Now,
2: I have heard that theoretically, I think I heard this at Red Day, and maybe someone uh, at Red Moe can correct me, is that essentially now with the MX, they're saying you don't need, up until, say, four stops of ND. Oh, ND-ing, I think I said this. <laughs> you don't need... No. You do not need anything. No. You just need a regular ND. Above four stops, yeah. then you start to need to start to look at hot mirror
1: okay, so i I tested with point three point six point nine kind of stuff. I can see a small amount of uh, uh, stuff in the blacks, far less than we saw on the m yep I think it 's so minor that you would take it out on the grade and i wouldn 't care less yep. if you want to start stacking aggressively like five six stops, well, then yeah, I still think you need. In my case, you need a what I'm calling a clear or that um, uh, some type of yep. additional IR filter. I wouldn't recommend a hot mirror, but that's because I don't recommend something that deliberately tints. Yep, but you could Absolutely. use a hot mirror, no, no, um, and not stack them, and and all of that is good. But there's just one more bit of the puzzle I got to get You're done, and then I'm done, right? Yep. And the last one is to give props to the Schneider guys because Schneider came out with a what was called a TrueCut 750, which was a Schneider Optics uh, piece of ND. IRND great worked really well in the red one they've since come out with a, another one called TrueCut 680 now right. you could guess what 750 and 680 refer to because we, that's what we started the discussion the cost? with how right? much no the freaking
0: nanometers I know. and
1: it's the wavelength of light right um, yep. so 680 for example is exactly what I would use on well An educated guess is what I would go for if you gave me a Scarlet and I was trying to pump up a Scarlet really hard because that's a smaller uh, CMOS sensor and traditionally smaller CMOS sensor chips require an earlier cut. So I would get, oh, well, my first grab off the shelf if I hadn't tested it would be a 680. But hey, you have? I haven't got a
2: Scarlet, so no. No, 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 no. no. (laughs) But we've got a 680 and an MX, or we've got a 680 filter. So, so, so,
1: 680 is a really good, uh, and I would say that like. As, as much as I am saying point blank that I use Tiffin so oh sorry, 0.6s, point 0.9s, point and, and I don't give a shit, if you were buying some – if you're making a recommendation, like a Red Center recommendation, you, you'd have to say that Schneider is leading the pack on its on its ND filters, IR ND filters right now. Um, because the true cuts are really really good and 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 i'm not trying to say that the others are crap because i we're talking like subtlety here but if you said to me hey mike i got a stack of new schneiders here and a stack of tiffins here right now and i'm really concerned because the client's really freaking that the pack colors on my piece of kellogg's product, whatever, but I mean the packaging you know how they're yeah. really obsessed with like <coughs> the their of tone course. of yellow. Of, yeah, you just have to the spend logo. forever
2: you know, you just think, oh we'll just grade it out, but you know it just really just ends
1: up eating into time, eating and, into grade And also on set, they just bucks, don't want to have like yeah, someone looking have, at the split going, oh I'd say hey, exactly go with the Schneiders because right. that's probably be yeah. most faithful and, and look, my shoot was fabulous. They were all going, oh, Jace, it's oh, just gorgeous, it. beautiful, no, but, golden sunshine. But, look, but oh, in advertising, right? In advertising, if I've got a product, like a box of cereal, and I'm an outdoor shot, I don't know why you take cereal outdoors, but let's just imagine you did. Because uh, all right, all right, all right, it's right. the healthy right. place to eat. The healthy place to eat. Okay, yeah. So, mum and dad are outside, the kids, and yep. look, I've got frosty, you know, donut-flavoured cereal. Yeah, with, with added marshmallow sugar, chunks. With marshmallow chunks and choc-tops and they're holding the pack, then it would be nice if the pack was in a shallow depth of field so it really popped out and the yep. background receded. Exactly. And I stack up the NDs and the product no longer looks quite the right colour of mm. Kellogg's red and whatever. Yeah, okay, well, that would be... A, it'd probably be in the blacks, but anyway, that would be your case in point for wanting to do this and hopefully, now I've got to the end of this very long carry-on, you can understand what's going on. Now, it will change because Tiffinol and other companies will come out with better... ND filters, but that's the pretty much the situation as okay. it is right now. So that don't don't say that because we're listening; they can't see what you're pointing
2: at. yep no, okay. But the footage that uh, I've the, seen, the, and mice, it, the stuff yep. that was
1: in oh
2: FXPHD, yes. yes, in FXPHD in your red course, yes, right. Uh so you've done specific tests with hot mirrors. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. And okay.
1: and uh and I haven't shown them to you because I don't want to talk about something we no, can't no, see. But you're we did discuss progress. it in our PhD course. Sure. But yeah, yeah, totally. We tested it. Um and then, as I said, like uh to research it for PhD and for for Red Center, we literally spoke to the Tiffin guys in London, had this in depth discussion with them. We've been sending them files, like Excellent. you know, it's really fantastic. Proactive. Everyone's in a really good... Fantastic. It's new, so I can't yep. tell you that everyone's solved everything, but yep. I'm saying to you that these are very good companies that are very responsive to trying to do this. But I, I, for one, needed to get to a point where I could fully understand what the hell was going on. Yeah. Because I couldn't get it. I couldn't understand why the Hot Mirror was going weird, and it was annoying the bajillicans out of me. Yep. And then I started having this discussion with some DOPs, and the DOPs were all like, you know what? I've never been able to get a straight answer on what's going on with these things. No. And so I thought I'd do that. Okay. Maybe I was wrong. So Email me if you think I was wrong.
2: So say you've got to do six stops now, right? So red saying yep. do four, five, four stops, no problem, with regular NDs. Y- y- yeah. we're going another two stops why yes. don't we just we're going to get pollution after that but it's only going to be a little bit I'd say so even if you're going six stops you're starting to just get subtle pollution I would be definitely. so I'm
1: your I'm your tech guy I'm hanging out with you yep. just trying to suck up to you to get at the next job yep. I would say if you're doing uh, one, two, three stops or single NDs so if, for example four stops with a single ND I'd be like you're probably not going to notice it much. I could probably see it and I could point it out to you on the split. Go anything above that, I would say not five, but four. Mm. Yeah, you'd be much better off having an IR filter because of just the maths that I described, right? Like one stop is half, two is, is half again, three is half again. By the time you get four, you've halved the half, the half, the half. The amount of IR that has to leak through to be relatively important, given we've now stacked down the, the visible light so much, yeah. is, is easy. It's, yeah. yeah. And the issue
2: what? is just going further up the scale, further away from from being an issue and you're going to see less of it creeping in.
1: But but you know and you are i'm so. i didn't, we didn't even prepare this ahead of time but no. but as you have said so eloquently it looked great on set right so this is all bullshit if you like it i mean sure but it'd but be if nice you want to that know that wintry
2: cold <laughs> i've got you know Campbell's soup and it has to be cold outside and, and i, I want
1: don't have yeah. to look the right color and exactly or yeah. if i'm
2: outside trying to do a stormy night beforehand and you know this is completely what you don't want
1: Yeah, and you know, I think that's the secret of professional cinematography, and for that matter, just professional post-production, which is, by all means, anything you want, but just be professional enough to be predictive in what the responses are going to be, Yeah. so you're not standing around wasting anyone's time, or getting an unexpected, nasty surprise, if you know what's going on, you can just play it, and you know... We shoot with anamorphics and get artefacts in them, but we know what the artefacts are, we understand why they're there, and we happily embrace them. But there are times that you wouldn't do it because you know that'll be not the appropriate thing for the job. Now, Okay. Having said that, you just like anamorphics all the time, so that's Absolutely. a bad example.
2: And the sooner red bring out their anamorphics, it's just going to be sensational.
1: The sooner you're sensational. you you be. Okay. So, look, um, feel free to send us in any questions or, or um, send us any you know, Twitter if you think that, um, that I'm wrong. But it's a it's a very it isn't not look it is, for want of a better term a black art. I don't think I think a lot of people are just like IR problem, oh, I'll grid some IR filters. Yeah. I don't know quite know well, why, exactly exactly what I did. Yeah. And there you go. Now, can I completely
2: change tack to another range of questions because we so planned this beforehand. When I got into grading and issues I had grading in light with MX footage. Sure. Though I've got no idea what you're gonna ask me, so <laughs> I may not be able to answer. Well it was um uh, I had like hot sunlight and stuff and it was on people's hands and it was a lot of dealing with, with peaking, you know, and I could see a little bit of peaking on set and I thought that's fine, it'll be okay, There's, there'll be information in there. Uh, now when we got into grading, essentially my grader was saying, look, that's it, It's we're run out of, essentially we're running on the same metadata that I'd set on the camera, say 500 ISO, Okay. Yep. It was basically saying, look, that's." he would wind it all down and say, look, basically that's the information, it's all blown out. And I'd say, well, can't you change the ISO in the metadata in the base light?" And he'd changed it to 250 or, you know, 180 or so ISO. And then all of a sudden there was all this information that I could get. I okay. guess my question is, if it was a film grade, all the information is there right down into into the highlights and into the shadows without having to then go back in and start changing settings in the base light or having to play with the, with the ISO, you know what I mean? I'm just wondering why even the grader, you know, was saying, oh, I'm sorry, we ran out of information. And it had to be the director, you know, with limited red knowledge saying, well, what if we change the ISO? And all of a sudden I've got all this information in my highlights I didn't have.
1: Okay, so it's... Um let me explain that, and, and I'm guessing because I don't know this for a fact. Okay. Uh, so the analogy is not the film on the Telecine, because the film on the Telecine, if you were to touch the base light, or the Da Vinci, whatever, um, you would be tweaking the pickups. The primary correction is on the Telecine, where the the actual um, pickups are picking up what light is going through a piece of film, and then that electronics. Is adjustable, and then that goes downstream to the desk, which tends to do secondary grading and and a bunch of other shit. Okay, now the the analogy is: imagine you asked to have the film scanned, and then you took the scanned film in to a base light or a DaVinci, whatever, yep. and started tweaking it. Well, if you'd done the original scan without opening uh, without shutting the ISO down effectively, you may not have any more latitude to work with the transferred material. But you could always, quote, go back to the film and retransfer, and you'd get it. See, I always saying?
2: thought that the original scan, the original sort of bake of a
1: of, uh, ne- neg scan range? would get the entire dynamic range of the neck. You'd neg. think, but no. That's where you'd be wrong. Because, okay, so here's the thing, and, and again... I'm and this is why this is annoying. All right, well... Okay, right, anyway, you explain the
2: tech, and I'll just get the shits Okay. with the, the tech itself.
1: <laughs> well, with, with respect... <laughs> It's not a problem with... Okay, I'll oh, shut up. Oh, look, so here's the thing, right? Uh, what you want, though you don't know it, is you actually want this miraculously to be doing tone mapping. What you want to say is, like I've taken a photo on my stills camera and I have a exposure that I like, if I change the fundamental pickup off the raw, I can adjust to see into blacks more or pull back the detail in the highlights. But once I've finished the raw conversion in no, no no Photoshop Bridge and I export it into Photoshop, it is what it is, right? You took those settings in. And so the only way to get around that is what you're saying is I would really like Red's conversion in a baseline to give me the full dynamic range, then compress it down into the range that I'm looking at and then put it in the picture and then I can choose to keep information in the highlights but oh, or by the way, get stuff in the blacks, which that process of getting stuff in the heights and in the black simultaneously, is asking for it to do what is, we call in the industry, tone mapping. It is mapping a broader dynamic range into a lesser dynamic range and keeping the top and the bottom and squishing it. I just want all the information that's in the R3D able to be graded. It does feel
2: like... But uh, it it's, it's it But it totally but it's No, but it feels like I'm grading in two halves. Like you have to go back and then reset the ISO and then you can go back and you have to lift everything else up. It just feels well, like...
1: Now, that is exactly you know what... I mean? what Okay, but your kinda your problem is that Oh God, I'm really gonna get in trouble when I say Oof. this. Okay, the colorist should have known that. Because Well this is true. Happening. This is I was I was
2: actually surprised that I was actually able to grade MX footage in Baselight, but apparently
1: no, no, na- nowadays it's yeah, that's the, all solved. We the, haven't gone back in time that far. I will even confess that on this very podcast I said we're waiting for the SDK two, as it were, the MX one to come out. Yep. As I was saying that it'd been out for a couple of weeks, I didn't yes. know that. And at NAB, everybody was showing MX footage. stuff, in yeah. it, which is why we stopped doing our, our workflow thing until we could get that post-NAB and we could start... Because we were about to talk about a whole lot of stuff that was about to be made irrelevant and we couldn't say that because we are under NDAs. Okay, so uh, so what you want is the colorist to affect the primary in the way that they used to do on the telecine. Like, you know everyone on the telecine... They, I don't know if you've noticed this. They actually had two sets of controls. They could actually control a lift... As a post lift, once the file had come down the chain from the telecine to the yep. desk, which in TV world was a compressed grade problem. You'd actually run a compressed grade, and the compressed grade was, guess what, trying to keep the highlights and the you know, right. thing and get the low contrast. And so, and then you'd come back to it later and you'd do a proper grade and you'd re expand the low con and get it looking contrasty again. And so, that idea of a low con, high con is what we used to do when we used to do a a transfer in episodic television. Yep. And then come back later and do the real grade. But when you were grading a commercial, and I used to sit in with some really good graders like Caro here and whatever, she would know to tweak the knobs on the telecine when she was trying to find stuff like that. Right. In the film because that was upstream of the desk and so it was the best place to get it because it went to the original neg and got everything it could off the neg. Then it came down to the desk and then they would tweak other things on the desk which might be like, as I say, secondaries. You don't tweak secondaries on the telecine. Yep. Okay, so that's uh, what's happening. So in the in the R3D sense of that, and um, it's uh, pretty simple, you have to convert the R3D to something that Baselight can deal with because even though Baselight inherently now accesses the r3d as raw Hmm. it doesn't actually tweak dynamically in the desk the raw so much as it does and it can do that but it brings that raw in and then keeps working on it because if it's doing secondaries it's not doing secondaries in some some kind of red sdk it why would it right it would convert it into a file format on the fly that it can deal with and then it does the rest of it. So if you're putting a power window over the top of Sure. ...or, you know, doing vignetting and shit, you're not doing the vignetting in the R3Ds, you're taking the R3D to base lights format, which is high res, internal, and then in doing it and outputting it to whatever format you want for the rest
2: of your job. So if I'm wanting something in the shadows that needs a certain setting of ISO, but then I'm also wanting something in the highlights which needs another ISO setting... You I, want tone mapping... Th- well, if the information's that, there, why can't I
1: get it all at one time? Uh, there, well, there would be a situation where I had, no, I had this discussion one grading this, ISO actually, is not going to... I actually had this discussion with Graham Natras. We were laughing about it. It was like, because I understand what you want, You want, but that is tone mapping, right? That is like yeah. the function of getting a, a range of stuff that normally you can't get. You, you're asking it to get one end and the other end simultaneously, and it can't do that and keep unity on the intermediate range of blacks and whites mm. it has to basically compress everything a bit to do that Sure. And I don't mean compress it in okay. I mean we got there yeah we got there we yeah, pushed the ISO down colorist, but I could imagine and I'm sure the colourist you're working with is. I don't know who yeah. it was and don't tell me because I don't want yeah, no, to know but no, no, no. I'm sure it was a good colourist right yeah. but just the, the going back to the film concept will yes. increasingly be exactly what um, is going to happen okay. but you know this whole idea of a tone mapping kind of solution is exactly what we're talking about coming with Epic and stuff. Like that's all been hinted at and that's all in the kind of fine detail hidden in the depths okay. of red user All right. just watch this space watch this space um okay. because we watch this color space people know that you want that even though it is uh s- look at a okay. mild I mean, tone it wasn't, it, it wasn't
2: a bad. pain but i could see in some wild situations that that
1: that it might be now, okay if you work That's for fine. the Baselight light corporation i mean yep. that would be um not Baselight, light but you know what i mean um yep. in and feel like. free to email me and tell me that I'm wrong, and I'm happy to correct it on air. But I'm guessing, but that's what I'm guessing what's happening. Okay. And I would guess that based on my experience of, say, bringing the same thing in a flame in an Autodesk system where I've. And it's also, you know.
2: Also, me as a DP, learning you know where to put it, where to put the exposure, learning the MX, the fifty different ways to judge exposure on MX, and yeah, what what to what to ignore and what to pay And I think the film analogy
1: to. is good because there are a number of times that we looked at stuff and we said, you know what, it'll be on the film exactly, and you went back to the film and, and got there, it. and there it was. Yeah, yeah, but and you're playing with noise floors and other things and stuff when you're tweaking that the other way, of course. Yeah, when you're trying to see into the blacks, but um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I. Uh, I'll just underexpose a bit more. I'll
2: just just underexpose a bit more next time. Well, no, you probably
1: expose it really,
2: really Mm, well. Yeah, well, just the hot stuff, yeah, anyway, I just, it was... uh... If you have a
1: photograph of this room and you expose for the windows and you expose for the room, you'll get two different exposures because you can't contain the room Mm. in the same exposure latitude. But the sensor may have a couple of stops between its bottom and top range. That's what I was doing.
2: I was you know, exposing to make it look nice on the split, to make it look nice in video village, to make it look nice to me, and knowing full well that I think I'll let these blow, these highlights blow because there's gonna be information in there. I could have exposed you know, underexposed it, made it down, made it look dark, you know, within thirty seconds have the producer walk in from the video village saying, It looks a bit dark (laughs) (laughs) and say, I fucking know it looks dark. Just anyway, so I sort of set the exposure for just you know make it look nice all around and and, you know the information was there it just was interesting that I had to I also think you do yourself
1: a disservice by saying you're just this guy who doesn't know anything about (laughs) it because I think you know quite a lot about it and I think that that was proven by that fact but hey
2: anyway all right. so so the upshot is, is watch this space and don't expect just at this stage, that it's going to be exactly like you can. Scanning, you can do like, it. Like just, film
1: it may not be one button that automatically does it. You have to enough. do it. a couple of steps. Hey, do you want to right. do the gear? Because I want to get onto this really cool geared head. Yep, that absolutely.
2: Yep, absolutely. Okay, well, I mean, I have touched on this before. Um The Gear Next geared head. Okay, geared heads are obviously... Um, wonderful. Uh, wonderful. Um, we love geared heads. We love geared heads. Um, the Gear Next has sort of been around for a little bit the last couple of years. It's been surfacing and they've been working on it and been working on it. But finally what was fantastic at NAB and at the Red Day at uh, Tropicana to finally get my hands on on, on this, this gear head. Obviously, and we'll touch on the interview, in, uh, touch on it in the interview, but uh, the whole idea of geared heads have kind of been sort of slipping out of set. Out of set. You don't see them on set so much because they're big, they're bulky. We don't often have the budget to have... You know a geared head and fluid head on set um fluid and don't know do. hmm? to have both it's oh, okay. often, yeah, as yeah, we'll touch sorry. on the interview it's great to have yeah, you know I'm to sorry. have to have both in in your kit but often the the money talks and you just end up going with the fluid but there's definitely some fantastic bonuses for for having your uh you know having a geared head and i spoke to brett allen uh who's soc he's that's the society of operating cameramen and he is one of the founders of of GearNex who've uh, brought this head to us. Look, thanks for chatting, Brett. I really appreciate it.
0: Yes, of course. My pleasure.
2: Uh, look, so what are the advantages on set of a geared head? Because obviously they're traditionally pretty big and bulky and heavy things.
0: Well, yeah, you know, if you go back to the history of the gear head, you know, originally cameras in Hollywood were so large that they required a gear... A geared assistance in order to pan and tilt them, and as cameras over the years got smaller, cameramen found that there was an advantage to working on that geared head, which now they still prefer. And it's been one of those little Hollywood secrets that they've been trying to keep to themselves. Now the big advantage is is that you have a precision control over your your adjustment. Say you uh, come in from a panning left to right really quickly and you can feather the stop and you can time the stop with a repeatable move by subliminally counting the turns and the cranks if the actor overshoots their mark you can make really small adjustments which are imperceivable You know, there's a huge amount of advantages to using a geared head. Uh, For example, if you're working on a dolly. If a dolly grip abruptly starts or stops, you might get a lurching. And by keeping a constant rotation on your wheel, you won't get that. The geared head is not susceptible to centrifugal forces that way.
2: Right, so if you're being thrown around on a dolly or tracking vehicle, less of your body movement gets transferred through to the lens.
0: Exactly. That's exactly right, yes.
2: So why do we seem to move away from Geared Heads and see this lessening of the camera operator as a separate role, do you think?
0: Well, I think there's two reasons for that. One is that little secret that I was telling you about. There's maybe three companies in the world that are making Geared Heads, Panavision, Airflex, and Moy, I believe. And the the people who are operating on high-end feature films are kind of keeping that as their own secret. If they started telling people how to, to work on a geared head, of course, then, then their jobs might be in jeopardy. At least this is what I was told when I was an assistant. And the cameraman never even let me near the gear head. So I had to learn on my own. I used to sneak the gear head into my room because <laughs> I had the key to the camera truck. And I learned on my own. And the other reason that there's been this move away from geared heads to fluid heads is economics. Uh, like I mentioned, uh, the three companies that I know of that are making geared heads, Panavision, you can only rent them. Aeroflexes are extremely expensive. You, know, you can buy a nice luxury car for what those cost. And um, and I'm sure that Moy has the same, the same thing. I'm not sure what they're charging for their heads. I think economics is probably more the reason that that has moved to fluid heads because there are more of them. They are less expensive.
2: So what made you feel there was a need for a, a new gearhead in the market? What made you think that we needed to head back to them?
0: Okay, it's purely a selfish reason. I, I used to operate on feature films and episodic television uh, out of Los Angeles and uh, out of Florida. And uh, I recently retired from the business and moved to Northern California. Um, I'm doing corporate films and commercials, that sort of thing now, and I still like Using a gearhead, but none of my clients would have the budget to allow me to rent one. Two, there were none near where I live. I live in Northern California. The nearest one I could rent would be in San Francisco or Los Angeles. And I certainly can't afford to buy a geared head. And so I, I thought, well, they're not that complicated. So I partnered up with a, a good friend of mine, Joe Mendoza, and we hired a uh, machine shop and we hired some engineers and they put together some plans and and we made a prototype and it worked wonderfully and we showed it around and other people liked it and that's how we got into the gearhead business
2: well let me tell you i was so glad to see the gear next head at uh, the red day Uh, a couple of weeks back it was just fantastic to see it in the flesh being such a physical and muscle memory thing you need to make it exactly like what you're used to
0: Yeah, and that was my goal. It had to be close to what I was used to, working on a panty head or an airy head. And the next thing it had to be was it had to be affordable. The third criteria I needed it to be was completely user serviceable. If somebody's going to buy one of our heads, I wanted them to be able to do their own adjustments to it, uh, do their own cleaning, their own maintenance, and that sort of thing. The other expensive heads... You have to send them to a service center or back to the rental shop. Uh, after every job, they take them apart, readjust them, and everything else. And I wanted to make sure that our head was simple enough for the user to be able to do that themselves. And then they had to be able to afford it. Uh, most equipment in this industry is extremely expensive, and cost was a main factor for us. We wanted to make sure it was within a price range that everyone could afford.
2: So I guess it's fitting in with the sort of Red mindset of the gearhead for the rest of us.
0: Yeah, you know, and, and Red actually started that. We we said, "Hey, here's a company that's got a great model. Look at their their young filmmakers now that have opportunities to make movies that they've never had before because they could afford to. They could afford to use equipment that was high quality, that was good enough to be." shown in theaters so red really set the model for us and uh, that's that's what we tried to follow and you know with some really talented people that we've hired to produce this thing for us we've got a head that's uh, affordable to everyone
2: well take us through the head itself and its specs i'm presuming for the money and for the size we're going to have some shortcuts are we
0: right you know if you know, a lot of people want to automatically compare it to an Arri head or a Pana head, and they can't really do that. You're, you're really trying to compare apples and oranges. Our gear head, yes, it is a gear head, but it's really designed for smaller cameras, you know, in that 30 to 40-pound range. It's only got two speeds in it, where the other gear heads have three. There just isn't any room to add a third bead in our transmissions, because we wanted to keep it small. We needed to keep it light. So the, the gear ratios are probably close to what an airhead head would be in the number one and number two gear. It has a 60-degree tilt range, so from level, it'll go 30 degrees to the back and 30 degrees to the front. To the forward. Uh, It'll do a continuous 360-degree pan for as long as you want it to. Uh, It has simple user adjustments on it, so if uh, it tends to get a little backlash, which gearheads will do after time, there's an easy adjustment for it the user can make right there on the set. It's easily cleaned. The old top rocker comes off uh, really simply. You can clean the gear in uh, a matter of uh, a few minutes and put it back together and, and keep going again.
2: I mean, apart from the third gear, it doesn't seem like there's much of a compromise. I mean, to be honest, the third gear was a bit of a luxury anyway. I don't even remember ever using it much.
0: Yeah, as an operator, I rarely ever operated in the third gear, only if I needed to, if I really absolutely needed that speed. And it has a, a neutral position in the pan, so if you do need to do a whip pan, you can put it in neutral and do your whip
2: pan. One of the downsides, I guess, of geared heads, of course, is anyone who's stepped up to one and tried to use it for the first time, is how the hell do I get comfortable using this? thing it's like rubbing your stomach and patting your head how do you get past that pretty steep learning curve
0: yeah you know my my answer to that is is with another question well how do you learn how to play a violin how do you learn how to play the piano well you have to practice you have to practice and you have to practice and you know when i first started out when i had the keys of that camera truck and i would bring the geared head into my room i'd strap a flashlight to it and i practice for hours with a with a flashlight writing my name, doing figure eight, trying to trace things on the wall. And, you know, after a few hours, I got the basics of it. And, and that's what it is. It's a matter of just practicing. If everybody practices within a few hours and definitely within a few days, they'll be comfortable enough with it that they won't need to be thinking about what they're doing. It'll just intuitively happen. And, and that's The real secret to operating a geared head is that you don't think about what you're doing. It just automatically happens. I know that if I do step out of the moment and I think about how I'm turning the gear or whatever, all of a sudden I'm lost and and I mess up the shot. It's because I was thinking about it. You just can't do that. You just have to let it happen. Now, we provide a training DVD and a uh, small laser pointer and a training chart. And the chart has figure eights and circles and uh obscure patterns and you can use the laser pointer to just learn the mechanics of operating the gearhead and you know that really just takes a uh, you know several hours maybe a couple of days to to get and then i recommend that people just throw away the, the laser pointer and then get out in the real world and start practicing. Follow people walking down the street, uh, following the fish in a fish tank or something. You, you want to try and, and look at random things that are happening. And I know that a, a lot of guys get caught up in the, the technical mechanics of operating a gearhead. Uh, I, I know some people have called me and said, well, you know, I've done it three cranks up, and I've done it three cranks over, and then I've done it three cranks down. And I think they overthink it. I think they just need to just practice it and just let it happen. Just go with the feel.
2: I have to sort of challenge somewhat your piano analogy in so much as I think it's probably more like riding a bike. Once you get it, you get it and then you almost never forget.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like that too. I think that is a better analogy is like riding a bike. Yeah. Absolutely. Cause piano
2: sounds really hard to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Maybe the bike would be a better one because, uh, uh, you know, when you first get on the bike, it gets really tipsy and you want to give up right away, but certainly it doesn't take too long. People have, uh, master the bike and then once you've learned it of course you never stop
2: so planned options i mean can we get an epl like an eyepiece leveler on it and one of the other things that are built into something like a pan head or an array head is a tilt plate where you can essentially bring out another extending bridge which will let you look right up or or look down
0: yeah absolutely uh that was uh one of the other criterias we, we've kind of made a list of the things that we needed to accomplish first of all we needed to make sure that our basic unit was up to the highest standard that we can make it that the uh, gears that we use in it are finely ground and they're highly polished and we got the performance out of it. Then we started designing our big tilt plate and that's an accessory that uh, we'll have uh, those available within the next few weeks and it's a a big tilt plate uh, much like that's on an airy head or a panahead where you can unclip it from the back and be able to do a 90-degree tilt down, straight down, or you can clip it from the front and do a 90-degree straight up. And it has incremental settings, so you can, you can adjust it for several degrees. The other accessory that we've got is sometimes the, uh, the back of the camera, uh, if, it, if it sticks out too far or there's uh, connectors or whatnot, and so what we've designed is a drop-down swing-over tilt wheel, so, it'll get that wheel out of the way. It'll also reposition itself to a 45 degree or 90 degree position, either the left or the right. And that's a, an accessory they're about ready to uh, announce as well. And then we have another accessory, which is a 3 inch camera riser, which basically does the same thing if you don't want to buy the uh, tilt wheel or you just need a, a quick. You need to rise the camera up about three inches to be able to clear that back wheel that's available as well and we're we're trying to uh, accommodate operators uh, with their suggestions and we we look forward to people giving us suggestions of what kind of accessories they'd like to see
2: you're also entering in a market at a time where cameras themselves are shrinking
0: yeah it, I think our head is perfect size for the red the d5 these HPX the ex ones uh, and and the list is going to go on and on. Uh, you know, obviously, if you've got a large camera, if you're using Panavision or the Airflex Five Thirty Five or something like that, you know, then then of course the bigger gear head is still the best way to go. But these smaller cameras are head that was designed for those.
2: So, how competitive is it price wise to tackle the red side of the market head on? It has to be reasonably affordable.
0: Yeah, uh, we of course, you know, when we were trying to figure out what we were going to price this at. Uh, you know, we looked at how much it would cost us to manufacture it, how much it would cost to sell it, and then what would be a reasonable amount of profit. And the price that we came up with is seven thousand five hundred US.
2: Wow, okay. I kept thinking you were gonna say thirty or seventeen or something. That's impressive.
0: We didn't want to be greedy. We you know, I'm a cameraman first and foremost, I'm a cameraman and I've I've designed this company and this head to be for the common cameraman like me and this is you know this is why why we do this because we love it
2: well i'm glad that you are doing it i can't wait to get my hands on one how can people find out more or even order one
0: our website is uh gearnext.com g-e-a-r-n-e-x.com
2: so where can we see it in action uh i guess cinegear is coming up are you guys going to cinegear expo
0: yes we will be at cinegear uh Film Tools in Burbank will be showing one of our heads. Uh, We're still trying to get uh, confirmation on a couple of other places that we'll be showing it. But if somebody is going to be at Cinegear, we will be there somewhere, and they'll be able to play with it and see for themselves what a wonderful unit this is.
2: Thanks so much, Brett, for taking the time to
1: talk.
0: My pleasure, Jason. Thank you.
1: Okay, so I, six grand, as you mentioned in that interview, seems like a pretty reasonable price. I mean, oh, what do you it's think? It's astounding. That, I mean, it's oh, okay. Let uh, me that. That's because I'm doing exactly what I confused other people doing earlier. Six grand is an astounding price. <laughs> do you think at six grand, though, uh, it'll be popular
2: and that people will buy it? I'm hoping so. Well, at least hoping that rental companies will bring it in because. Uh, it is a great tool to have in conjunction with the fluid head. There's stuff where it's not great for, and there's 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 definitely jobs where you want to have both in the truck. So I'm hoping they're going to start getting start bringing it back onto set and start getting people's heads around it and start getting it. It's it's not like this weird old piece of tech that people just need to get over it and just move on. And it was you know it's 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 it's, it's going it's out it's out uh, with old big old blimped Mitchells. You know it's an old piece of tech. It's it's a valid sure piece of technology so i'm definitely hoping that we're going to start to see them um around because it's it's in a way it's in danger of of dying out and just you know people just not getting their heads around it the 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 more the younger sort of indie red crowd um, that's still
1: like vital geared head principle is still vital especially on like a Crane, right? Like, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean anywhere
2: not do it that way. Uh, yeah, no, it's 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 a it's it's a real help for any any situation where you're being thrown around bodily. You know, if you imagine if if yeah. I if I if I put you on a dolly and throw you around, give you a really quick high G force start and stop and you're trying to operate a, a panhandle We're dead. Yeah. yeah, you're all of that vibration is gonna come through to the lens. So you know, or if you're doing uh, a, f- a guy falling off a building, and you don't want to tilt down too far that you see the airbag. You know, that's the thing with you can set that hard stop. So you go tilt down one, two, boom, I'm, stop.
1: I'm with you, man. I think it's are good. There's a lot of there's a lot of uses I, for I it. I would personally love to have one. I,
2: I would I, personally love to have one also. Um, um, I can't quite justify it, but uh, I've always wanted to have one. And you know, now for the for this price, I'll it's uh, definitely definitely justified cheaper than a Steadicam
1: hey um, while we're talking about gear it is cheaper than a Steadicam that's true though I quite like my Steadicam um, we're talking about gear we just want to do a shout out um, uh, yeah quick shout Jeff out Jeff sent us an email yeah uh, Jeff Harrell just quick
2: shout out to a mate of his who had a stolen SR deck um, this is basically stolen in uh, Austin Texas uh, I think only about uh, a few weeks ago and it's an SRW 5500 deck Serial number is one four one three seven.
1: Let us say that again: one four, four one three seven. If you see uh, that on eBay or someone trying to flog it around town or whatever, I don't
2: know what this means, but it's got five thousand and one, five thousand and two, and five thousand and three boards on it. Uh, last seen in Austin, and yeah, look if if anyone's trying to flog one or if you see one surfacing, uh, give uh, Jeff Harrell uh, a ping: Jeffrey Harrell uh, at gmail dot com. That's two f's, two r's, two l's. Uh, He's actually also um, twitter dot com slash jeffrey harrell. uh,
1: And if for some reason you want to be anonymous, feel free to anonymously email us, and we'll pass it through to
2: him. We'll pass it on anonymously as well, obviously. So yeah, there's a lot of this stuff going on. There's a lot of gear. There's now a dedicated Red user, which I've been pushing for for a long time, on Red user. There's dedicated stolen uh, thread, a sticky thread, because there's a lot. There's so much gear going going floating around. It's just.
1: put their hard-earned money in the kit they deserve to keep it yeah absolutely. hey um we've got to finish up some twitter yep. shout outs yeah shout outs yep
2: okay we've got two today um i'll do one you can do one mike um, I'll do the first one. Okay, Duncan Jones, who most people will probably hopefully be following. He has got a lot of followers. Uh, Duncan Jones is the director, was the director of Moon, and I think he's just wrapped up on... The film Moon? The film Moon.
1: Oh, I want to follow him.
2: And uh, he's just finished, wrapped on uh, Source Code. He's not great at uh, replies, but he's good at the information going out, not sort of going in necessarily. But uh, uh, his uh, Twitter is Moon uh so twitter.com slash manmade moon and uh it's also got a blog about his you know on set experiences working on moon and uh and as soon as he can i'm sure he'll be talking about the next one which he's just wrapped
1: and i'll do uh nathan who's urban rhino uh on twitter uh, he's a, a dp he's a post geek he's our kind of guy
2: and he also has the excellent blog, uh, Final Cut User blog, which he does need to update a little bit more often because I go there yeah, quite you... a lot and it's...
1: What's that about, Nath? Mate. Yeah, come on. Urban um, Rhino, which is as you'd expect it to be with no But there is a plug
2: in... there for FX PhD there on, on the front, front I said he was that kind of
1: guy. Don't, don't get me wrong, I'm just totally there i know we're running
2: out of time but can we do a quick plug i know you're not sort of big at plugging your own stuff but let's plugging plug the, your red red course it's not too late for people to sign up for that kind of stuff is it
1: no no not at all we um yeah we love people signing up for our red course over at fxphd.com we um uh about uh well yeah we've we started the term we basically if you join now you'd get all the stuff that we've so far published actually i think week god was it three yep. which was last week we did this Awesome, I think it was awesome thing on uh, all the red menus. Yeah, and that's we spent really a lot good. of time doing that, and uh, I hope people really like it. It's, it's really um, great because it's
2: up to date. I mean, literally, you're dealing with essentially the same, the, the, mo- the most up to date menu setups.
1: Exactly, which is why we don't do uh, DVDs that we sell because yeah, we want them to be the latest setups, and you know, things like the uh, IR filters and all that kind of stuff does change, so it's important to be up to date. Hey, there is one thing I forgot to mention when we were doing the um, the stuff earlier, which is. Um, and this is really important, actually, for some people that bought the first versions of the LightCraft uh, variable ND filters, which is the um, filters that we were talking about a few shows ago. I'm going to say like five shows ago, but it might be even longer. Um, so there was the first batch of those tended to soften the image. Now this is not a problem if you are um, putting stuff out as video because, you know, you've got a high-res filter and it comes down, it sharpens up. But if you were to blow up to normal one-to-one on a still, you would actually see that the variable NDs were actually softening the picture quite severely, actually, in some cases. Um, This is a problem that was fixed, but if you've experienced that with um, any of the variable NDs uh, or the fader NDs, you should really contact uh, the equipment manufacturer guys because there is... There is, well, there was a newer version of those uh, variable NDs and the Fader ND Ultras, uh, which vastly improved the problem. Um, and I meant to mention that. Yeah, it's a Mark NDs 2 out basically.
2: So yeah, if you've got um, uh, if you if you've if you've sort of basically been holding off, you know, from from ordering uh, something from Fader ND uh, from from sorry uh, from Lightcraft Workshops, um, then they've now sort of essentially fixed that batch and they've got a Mark 2 out. So it's don't you know don't really hold off you can go and grab them
1: yeah and and uh i appreciate Lightcraft actually um acknowledging the problem and uh, and fixing it so it really they were though i was really the the earliest bunch of these that this was a problem on um so it may not even be your set but it's worth testing and uh, and seeing if you've got it and i should have mentioned that when we were talking about uh variable nds but i'm not going back to talk more nds but yeah variable nds are a whole different kettle of fish we were talking about ir yeah but i do want to mention that and i forgot to yep thank you hey jace i totally as always appreciate your um immense uh, contribution to thank you same same the industry as in red center hey um obviously we do this each week but just for those that are perhaps uh new to it where's the best place for people to um have a look at your uh, directorial stuff in other words your your professional stuff my
2: website jasonwingrove.com uh, and also obviously you can catch me on Twitter uh,
1: twitter.com slash wingrove and Mike I'm, I'm always to be found over either at fxguide.com or fxphd.com where we do our um, our uh, red training stuff and um, we have uh, as I say a, a brand new course that's running over there at the moment hey um, awesome Jace, uh it's been a good one we've got some other interviews uh, coming up in We're well, not going to say them just jinx it but I've got yeah. some really good interviews coming up so Hopefully you'll join us uh, as we enter our third year of Red Centre. And, yeah, if you've got
2: any questions, any thoughts, red at Love to hear from you.
1: A lot of people do post us at redfxguide.com, and I would say on the whole, unless we miss one, uh, we answer them all. Try so to. we really Sorry. appreciate it because a lot of, honestly, really, really good material makes us sound really clever. comes from you guys uh, emailing it to us.
2: Yep, uh, we appreciate it. If there's any corrections, any thoughts,
1: anything we've got wrong, so, Jace, I, I want to thank you uh, so much for everything that you do, but also I think we really need to thank our producers and editing and team behind the scenes because we actually have a bunch of people that put the show together. And it's remiss of us not to have um, uh, thanked them publicly earlier. Yep, we've got uh, Matt Graham, producer, who also does the edit, edits the show,
2: gets it together for us, uh, makes us sound as good as he does, as well as Alan Cheshire, who is also uh, in charge of the editing and quality control. And, uh, yeah. Chesh is actually
1: an onset DIT. He is. And he's a really good one, too. He did um, knowing and stuff. So, actually, having Chesh check our stuff is really good because, quite frankly, he knows so much about this, it's not funny. Well, no, but my point is he, he pulls us up if we, you know, erroneously refer to the wrong thing. It's not just True. like a um, a trivial uh, thing that he does for us. It's absolutely uh, essential. Yeah, thanks, chaps. <laughs> Because surprisingly, we get things wrong. <laughs> um, guys, look, thanks so much for listening uh, as we enter our third year. We really appreciate it. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. Thanks so much. I'm Jason Wingrove. Thanks, guys.
0: Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us, red at fxguide.com. Copyright 2010 FX Guide LLC